0: Hi everyone, this is Lahiri, welcome to ABCs of Anesthesia and I'm with Kaz, we're going to get back into our Basics of Anesthesia series of medications and the last one for this series is going to be vasopressors and inotropes just the common stuff, the stuff you need to know straight away when you're going into work, so let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome again, the usual disclaimer, all of this is just general medical advice, please don't use it to treat any specific patient, Uh, so let's get cracking, Kaz, it's been a while, Uh, happy new year how you going
1: yeah good good um so I think the last one we did together was around in September um what's happened since then we've had a lockdown we've come out of lockdown everyone's got COVID um yeah I think I think it's really interesting that whatever we do in this two-year period automatically is dated by any conversations to do with COVID so you know in 10 years time we will look back at this and go this is during a pandemic.
0: We, we, should we put some kind of timestamp about the level of lockdown and the level of yeah. anxiety, or or how or how few restaurants or places we've been to, or the fact that I haven't traveled overseas in this long?
1: I uh, think this is the longest I've been in my life since I, probably I was in utero when I um when I haven't traveled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went to Tasmania over, um, just after New Year's and Christmas, and oh, um, we went camping and kind of did a few hikes and stuff um, up in Fraser Oh, very nice! It was it was it was interesting. Um, it was interesting revelation to me to realize that I didn't necessarily have to go overseas to get the same kind of. Mm. Uh, grounding and perspective that often go when traveling um that you know going camping and turning your phones off and spending time with friends is is actually enough so
0: what were you what you were actually doing was you getting ready for the post-apocalyptic world and you were (laughs) getting ready to as a prepper you live off the land camp, hunt for food (laughs) i'm just prepping for the zombie apocalypse if the walking dead
1: has taught me anything that's right excellent (laughs) how about you How, how have you been since last year
0: uh, look I've got this new camera to help with zoom quality which is fantastic uh, I've spent actually you know, it's been a really busy time so um, yeah, a couple of courses now published online which I'll put some links to um, we're going to do a whole series of lectures this year including you know with you as well Kaz so medical student lectures and um, just a lot a lot of stuff uh, for, in the education space and mm-hmm. um, yeah I think that's that's you know what that's finally the most fun stuff but yeah I've got a I've got a whole sabbatical planned where I'll do some education stuff with uh, with ANSCA, uh in Broome, so that will be really really interesting. So that's uh, that's what's happening this year.
1: Yeah, you, you finally uh, break the wall into the uh, you know the um, the fortress that
0: is WA. Um, yeah, look, I haven't broken into it yet, so <laughs>
1: who knows if
0: they'll even let me go up to the Kimberley to you know, do these projects. But uh, I, I I can't wait to work in some of those remote centres and you know. It'll be amazing. to work with the GP and Estas who are a fantastic bunch there. Um, I, 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 there's such an active education group as well. Um, fantastic guy called Casey Parker. He runs a, a, a podcast called Broom Docs, I think it is. And um anyway, they uh, they're just a really interactive, really uh yeah, it really involved education process. Um this fantastic guy called Greg Coates runs GP and anaesthetic shoots weekly through the whole year. Uh, it's, it's, it's it's really it's a really great resource um, to be linking in with those guys. So okay. let's get let's get started with some inotrope stuff.
1: Yeah, so I guess in this episode, what we want to do is cover vasopressors and inotrope. So, um, you know, quote unquote, the uppers that we use intraoperatively and in the critical care space. Um, so I guess let's start really broadly and, and hone in on it, um, Lahiri. So what's the difference between an inotrope and a vasopressor?
0: Yeah, so I mean, the way I think about it, inotrope is anything that increases inotropy. Uh, which is your contractility of the heart. And examples of those would be adrenaline would be the major one. And there's all these others that have inotropic effects like dobutamine, even noradrenaline at high doses has inotropic effects. Um, and uh, ephedrine as well, one of the common ones you use. Now note that this is mainly beta-receptor activity. So pretty much any, any medication that gives you uh, increased beta-1-receptor uh, beta activity that will increase your ionotropy
1: so um i guess broadly ionotropy <laughs> is increasing the force of contraction and this is due to the intracellular calcium concentration mm. so as larry said you can do this by activation of you know the beta-1 receptors which are the main agents we use um, and then there's other ones that we use more commonly in icu um, so these are things that inhibit phosphodiesterase in, um, three which is like milrinone aminophilin aminophilin um, iv calcium itself and also cardiac glycosides like digoxin um, yeah, yeah. and then levocimandine which increases the calcium sensitivity of troponin C. I know I see you use it a fair bit in different centers in Victoria. I haven't actually seen it used but that's kind of an overview but in really in theater as, as Lars said adrenaline noradrenaline at high doses and then ephedrine are the main ones we use. Cardiac you might use dobitamine and things like that but um,
0: outside of a cardiac theater it's unlikely. Fantastic. Vasopressos. Anything that has this alpha activity on the vessels that causes vasoconstriction or venoconstriction. And so the common things you'll hear about are noradrenaline obviously, um, but even adrenaline as we get to higher doses uh, and then metaraminol. So they've got alpha activity, potent vasopressors um, and anything that really has this alpha activity. So the common ones we'll talk about today are then noradrenaline and metaraminol because they're very specific to what we do.
1: do. And what about phenylephrine here? Is that something that you use very often in, this in I've,
0: I've only seen it used in one hospital I've worked in and only it was just an option so I remember someone having this 100 mil bag of saline and you know injecting whatever dose of phenylephrine and I think 10 milligrams was the dose and just ta- extracting it out for each case hmm. um so you know it's mixing drugs between patients not the worst not I guess not the worst thing in that context but in most of the hospitals I've worked it's always just been metraminol for the ease of dilution hmm. how, how about you?
1: Yeah, I think I've used it uh, once before, um, and predominantly for obstetrics. I think it's cheap, um, and uh, again, they used to. I think did take one while dilute it down and use it between patients. Mm. Um, I think there was a bit of a notion that it was. Um, I think it's, it was traditionally used in um, in obstetrics, so I think it kind of persevered in that space. I think there was some notion it's better than medrominol, but from uh, what I know, know. from yes. what I know, they're very similar, and I think
0: is, if anything, a bit better. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Like all those studies um, where, where they're using, they're measuring the cord gas profiles based on using ephedrine versus phenylephrine and phenylephrine was better. Um, but those, those studies never showed any impact afterwards. So the outcome measures uh, weren't you know, necessarily that clinically, not necessarily clinically relevant. And plenty of times you'll see people using metaraminol, which wasn't the studied agent and using it with you know, no adverse events as well.
1: So staying on vasopressors, one of the things that um, took me a while to understand conceptually is um, the actual physiological mechanism by which it increases blood pressure. So very traditionally, we know blood pressure equals heart rate times, sorry, cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. So often I just thought, oh yeah, it increases systemic vascular resistance and that increases blood pressure. But one of the, um, one of the things that I think uh, really changed the way I think about this is the idea that these alpha one receptors also exist in the venous system. Mm -hmm. um, And this veno constriction that you get with these agents increases your venous return and then your preload, which depending on where you are in the Frank Starling curve can increase cardiac output. And that contributes quite significantly depending on the patient. So if you have someone who's relatively... Underfilled, um, then you have quite a pronounced effect. But if you have someone who's overfilled or with significant cardiac dysfunction um, in in terms of systolic dysfunction, then the, that effect would be less. And you could even say in someone with severe heart failure, using an alpha one agonist would, um, you know, you wouldn't have that venoconstriction and then increased venous return, and you would have increase in afterload, which is the the force that the heart contracts against. So you would actually not see an increase in blood pressure and you're actually going to decrease in cardiac
0: output. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really interesting because you can actually observe this in real time. If you, uh, if if anyone's looked at their monitor when they've got an art line in and often one of the newer parameters that's available is pulse pressure variation and pulse pressure variation is probably the best evidence-based measure of fluid responsiveness. So if I, if the number is, and, and the one number to think of is pulse pressure variation of 12, The patient has to, there's a few provisors, can't be in rapid AF or AF in general, has to have a closed chest, minimal PEEP. So there's a few kind of provisors there. And you'll see this pulse pressure variation. If it's really high, the pulse pressure is varying a lot, which means that you're you're sitting on a lower part of the Frank-Styling curve. So you're underfilled. And if it's less than 12, then you're probably uvolemic or well-filled. And what I notice in those situations where maybe you're underfilled and you give aramine or metaraminol or a vasopressor, then you see the pulse pressure variation trending downwards. So it's almost like, oh, that makes sense. The volume side of things totally is, totally is being addressed with vena constriction with metaraminol. So that's just a little experiment to check out and run with.
1: That's a really good point. And another way um, you could apply that is I think one of the things everyone tells you when you're, when you're training is if you have a patient who's bleeding, you need, you need volume, not pressor. Um, And I think it took me really understanding this to understand, well, yes, if if you're losing volume and you're losing preload, and you're not increasing that preload with fluid, then um, increasing systemic vascular resistance won't help. Well, it will help, but it wouldn't be a definitive solution. Exactly. So let's put some of these ideas into a clinical context. So the most common clinical situation that we would use a vasopressor in is post-induction hypertension. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is your framework for approaching this Lahiru and what are the considerations that you use?
0: Yeah, great. So in almost every patient that you'll do an induction, they'll have some level of blood pressure drop and that's just normal. So the, fir- the first thing is that if I give propofol and lots of opioids to someone, their blood pressure will probably drop because of venodilation and vasodilation um, and maybe even some effects on contractility as well. So, okay, this is a really common thing. Blood pressure drops after induction. What do you do? Um, the first thing is blood pressure drop could be any of these things: preload, rate, rhythm, contractility, or afterload. And in this situation, it's most likely due to the anesthetic agents. There's a, you know, the, it's a very temporal causation type thing. I've given these drugs that that dilate the vessels, and the blood pressure drops. So my solution to that is to give a vena dilate and a, sorry, a vena constrictor, and a vasoconstrictor, or an alpha one agonist, or an alpha agonist uh, like metaraminol, which is again really easy to draw up you know you've got this vial 0.5 milligrams per mil dilution um, and then you just give one mil or two mil maybe um, to just prop that blood pressure up um, so that, that's probably the easiest thing now just remember you you might be wrong about this and we'll go into this a bit later with uh, with the with the other vasopressor and inotropes but just remember if you're keeping on giving vasopressor and it's not working then you do have to think of that framework is it the rate is it the rhythm has gone funny rapid AF or even VT or is the contractility bad but in most occasions when you have a general anesthetic induction it's venodilation and vasodilation causing low blood pressure Metaraminol is the answer
1: and um, a bit of a personal question here how often yeah. do you have to use vasopress after you do an induction rarely most often commonly
0: yeah I mean it, it, it when I answer this question I almost I'd say that I often use vasopressor, and the, and I've got to say that this is a funny thing because I think there's a culture in anesthesia that you feel like giving vasopressor is almost like you did a bad induction. I think I think when I was training, there was this culture of oh no, you, you you'd wear that blood pressure, you, you'd, you'd you'd let it you'd let it drop, it, it's it's fine, and it was almost like this thing where you the sign of a good anesthetic is not giving vasopressor. But I, I've got a very count, counter opinion to that, which is if you give the right dose of vasopressor to someone who's pain-free and hypnotized, chances are the blood pressure is going to drop. And that's the appropriate response to this. And the right thing to do is to make sure that that map is above a certain range. So I will be far more happy with reasonably liberal use of vasopressor to make sure that that blood pressure is going to absolutely be perfusing the brain. So I I don't, I don't like this concept of, Oh, I'll tolerate a, a blood pressure of 70 or 80, if the if the normal block pressure work 120, I aim, you know, for 20% of that.
1: And there's a there's a lot of data coming out recently about um kind of borderline hypertension interoperatively and, and adverse effects that come as a result of that, which mm. um which I think is is very intuitive, but I think you are right. You know, if you're on the ward, you would never tolerate a systolic of 65 and mm. just go, it'll come up. <laughs> um, you always treat it and I think intraoperatively because we potentially contribute to it with the drugs we use we, we often do tolerate it so I think that's um, mm. I think that's a really valid point
0: so you should <laughs> yeah and there's like the pharmacoeconomic kind of thing as well like it costs a lot to keep drawing up these medications and then breaking them open so potentially in the past there was this thing of oh we've got to we might have to be a bit more you know re- reasonable about where the we use these things but again yeah you're right data coming out about just don't don't tolerate sustained hypotension in these patients.
1: Mm. And it's it's a really weird thing to um, have as a consideration. You know, the the five dollars of of a drug um, that you that you don't want to waste when the the surgical equipment itself costs. To yeah. a twenty thousand prosthesis for example in an orthopedic case yeah like that cost balance always seemed um, really weird to me but I think us as a profession we're, we're quite uh, environmentally and financially conscious um at an individual level not necessarily at the department level um that we do think about it and I feel like sometimes I think about it more than i should especially at yeah. the trainee.
0: Yeah. Again, practical advice. If you're a trainee, you, you know you just suggest these things. See what you see what your supervisor says. But just have a look at how often you're using metaraminol and what people's comfort level is, or what you know is there evidence for a map or a systolic blood pressure people should aim at. But just know that uh, I think, in my opinion, I'm not tolerating eighty blood pressure of eighty most of the time. That it's I'm always trying to get it above ninety or hundred. And if that means running a metaraminol infusion then so be it, you know, at least um, I, I feel like there's very little danger in going or aiming at normality. I, I feel like there's just something very intuitively right about that. Um, it, you know, you don't need to aim at absolute normal, but, you know, having having the, the yeah, being able to aim at 20% of normal is, it, I think, just very reasonable.
1: But let's maybe extend that a bit more. So as you said, you're giving... Um metaraminol and you're still getting sustained hypertension. let's say it's a little bit responsive to the to the drug um at what point do you c- consider a should i start an infusion of metaraminol mm-hmm. b should you add another agent like ephedrine um mm-hmm. and c when do you upgrade to um you know the, the big daddy vasopressors uh, <laughs> like, right. like noradrenaline
0: yeah, you're right. So, um, you know, I think a metraminol is beginners noradrenaline. You can give it peripherally. Uh, you don't have to put a central line in. It's very easy to dilute and it's very common and, you know, very easy and practical and very titratable. Uh, so first of all, when would I run an infusion? Again, if I'm just constantly giving doses and it's a long enough case, like if, even if it's a case of an hour and I'm pretty regularly giving metraminol, um, you know, it, it's just really easy to be hands off. You You know, you set up the infusion, run it at Two two to five milligrams an hour, if, if, if that's what they need. You aim at a blood, blood pressure of twenty percent of their normal blood pressure, and 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 we're good. You don't have to keep dosing it. Also, your um, anesthetic chart looks a lot smoother because your blood pressures aren't d- being reactive. Like you you actually have a nice constant constant blood pressure. So, uh, so in answer to that, I think I would run an infusion if I if it looks like they're using regular uh yeah regular aramine. This, This often happens in most cases, but there's some cases that I wouldn't, because I know that they're going to start getting hypertensive. So most well patients having laparoscopic surgery. So think of every lap collar you've ever done. Initially, the blood pressure does fall a bit, but as soon as neuroperitoneum uh, is instituted, generally you have a high SVR state and you probably won't need to be giving that much vasopressor. Yeah. In terms of when I'd use noradrenaline, usually it's a, usually something Either the case is a long case and you know you'll be using metaraminal for a long time, and there's a certain tachyphylaxis you get with metaraminal because it is direct and indirect acting. So you might deplete some neuro- intrinsic noradrenaline reserves, part of its mechanism action. It releases noradrenaline from the terminals of the, of the nerves and then causes vasoconstriction. So you might deplete that a bit. Uh, so that's why, you know, if I'm doing a big liver case or, you know, Whipple's procedure, these take hours. Um, you you put the central line, you might as well start running noradrenaline because that's direct acting.
1: So that leads on pretty well to uh, another question, Mm -hmm. um, which is peripheral versus central NORAD. Um, Can you tell us a bit about uh, when you would use peripheral NORAD if ever and when you would uh, would not?
0: Yeah, I've actually never used peripheral NORAD, but I've seen it used. I think in an emergency, you can use these medications with a fast flowing line. Now, for, for the audience, the, the risk with using inotrips and vasopressors peripherally, especially vasopressors, is any extraversation um, can cause tissue damage, necrosis, and the fact that it's a vasoconstrictor in a peripheral small vein could cause a vasoconstriction. But if you use dilute solutions with a fast-flowing drip, it, it actually may be okay. And, and I've definitely seen this used in an emergency. So check with your supervisor. Maybe while they're putting the central line in, you'll be dosing metaminol, Maybe you'll be dosing adrenaline even. And, you know, at, at, at a, uh, you know, if you really, really need to dosing noradrenaline peripherally, but very, very, very carefully. Um, and that's, and that's an interesting, because I think every single time I've ever needed to give an inotrope without a central line, it's an emergency. And generally, I'll go straight to adrenaline, which is far more, maybe far more comfortable with giving adrenaline peripherally, because they've done that for anaphylaxis, or they've done that for cardiac arrests, or yeah, so I haven't actually personally seen the need for noradrenaline peripherally.
1: Um, I, I don't think I've ever started either, but I think they do it a lot in ED, um, in ICU, mm. in emergency care. Not a lot, but I think when, when needed, uh, yes. when Rama isn't working. But I think you have to be cognizant of those risks. And I think cognitively, you then have to go, what's the worst thing that could happen? You could get lim- limb ischemia and, and lose that limb. Mm. And is that better than the alternative? And I think that's kind of the balance I think you have to make if the patient's peri-arrest and unfortunately gonna, gonna um, not make it through, then I think you can make that call. But um, I definitely wouldn't do it without a consultant.
0: Yeah, that's right. So stay away from peripheral administration of NORAD and be cautious about any peripheral administration of any inotrope really, um, especially the, the powerful ones, adrenaline, noradrenaline, um, and even even metraminal. When you're running that infusion, if you're drip tissues, that is a problem. So you gotta be so careful with all these things.
1: Moving on to another situation where we, we would use vasopressor quite regularly is, um, you know, in an obstetric case. So in a patient under a neuraxial blockade mm-hmm. um, uh, where we would have to use it regularly. So what agents would you use in this situation for say an elective Caesar list? Um, mm-hmm. and what are your considerations?
0: Absolutely. So at this point you're thinking, why is it every anesthetic needs some kind of vasopressor? Why are we constantly dropping blood pressure? And yeah, spinal anesthetic is one of those uh, very common situations where you they, you take away the sympathetic tone throughout most of the body or a large part of the body. And that causes a decrease in systemic vascular resistance. And that causes your, again, venodilation, dilation, vasodilation equals blood pressure drop. So yeah, especially in spinal anesthetics for cesarean sections, this is just such a common pattern that almost everyone would have aramine ready and drawn up. Some cases, general anesthetics, you don't have it drawn up, you know, fit well person having a hernia, but cesarean sections you absolutely almost always have um, aramine ready and drawn up Um, other places may have phenylephrine as we mentioned before Um, and yeah most i think most people either so what i do personally i co-load with fluid first and that's my way of preventing hypotension, plus a bit of aramine whereas other people run an aramine infusion from the very start um give you know uh, judicious boluses at the start as the spinal goes in and then as things settle down and the blood pressure starts trending down you're like oh good Spinal is working, the blood pressure is dropping. It's almost a sigh of relief because you know your spinal is working, and then you start treating with aramine. And running five five milligrams, so any anywhere from like two to five milligrams an hour is probably reasonable.
1: Um, what's the rationale behind doing the, the, um, the fluid bolus um, beforehand? Is that you know, uh-huh. we're saying it's an issue with systemic vascular resistance, so
0: why are we giving fluid? Uh, so it's you know it's venodilation as well um there's an interesting study came out of the international journal of obstetric Obstetric anesthesia they're looking at all the ways that you can prevent blood pressure hypotension during seizures and co was one of the most effective and interestingly enough it wasn't preload so if you gave it before the spinal it didn't work as effectively but if you gave it as the spinal acted and just gave a liter straight up then it did work effectively so i'll i'll put a liter on a pressure bag and just drop that in uh, as soon as the spinal's in as, as my strategy. And then sometimes that's all I need. Other times I do need to give small infusions of Mm, metaraminol.
1: That's quite interesting. I wonder if that's because you do get the movement of the crystalloid into, out out of the intravascular space. So you only get something like 250 (laughs) mils in a one liter staying. So if you co-load it, potentially you get that. Maybe Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Excellent. Um, So we've gone through, I guess, these are the kind of common things, uh, having aramine ready is such a common thing. So, uh, sorry, you know, giving aramine during cases is such a common thing. Kaz, have you ever had like instances where you're super worried about blood pressure drops and you're, you know, you've already got the infusion started or you, you know, you've already drawn up all your inotropes?
1: Yeah, um, I think the most frequent is the emergency laparotomy you know the, the sick mm-hmm. emergency septic patient um and often if, if they're above you know 65 70 years old um you know that that hemodynamic um compensatory response is going to be uh mm-hmm. so i think in those cases you know you always have usually a, a um a big syringe of metraminol so 10 milligrams in um in 20 mils because you know you'll have to use a fair bit or um you will have to start an infusion mm-hmm. Um, and there are definitely um, those emergency cases where you know you will need to get central access prior to starting the case. You'll get a central line in, and again, mm-hmm. even electively, I think those big cases like um, the Whipple's procedures or any kind of you know um, big ejectomy you would really want to have central access before you start. So I guess the broad concepts there are someone you're expecting blood loss, someone you're expecting to be um, intravascularly depleted mm-hmm. preoperatively without adequate time to resuscitate so an emergency situation mm-hmm. um, or in someone you know is going to have crusty um autonomic responses so kind of your vas- your sick vascular patients or mm-hmm. um or uh, anyone with multi comorbid with lots of kind of diabetic um neuropathy yeah.
0: that's true yeah and I, actually that's a good framework there because if you know if you're giving a GA you know you're going to drop the blood pressure and all you have to do is add anything else on top of that. And suddenly your, your risk of severe hypertension is huge. So anyone who's already got preload issues, septic, you know, septic patient volume loss, anyone who's got uh, you know, a and septic patient, anyone with any cardiac issues, valve problems, severe extenosis, you, you're always thinking about this as your major problem of induction, you know, hypertension mm-hmm. and poor perfusion. So yeah. Nice.
1: Um, and if you're really worried, you just get a bag of Norad ready preoperatively. And, and I think um, I, I think you would know the patients you need to have that ready for.
0: So the next medication that we very commonly use in anesthesia is ephedrine, or what I say, beginner's adrenaline. Um, so yeah, tell us, like, how do you prepare that? What dose, doses do you give? When, when would you give it?
1: So ephedrine is um, you know, predominantly indirectly acting. It has both alpha and beta activity. So I, I guess that's a similarity with adrenaline. It has both the inatroletic and a vasopressor effect. Um, there's a I think there's a couple of preparations that are out there, but the most commonly used one is um, you have 30 milligrams of ephedrine. So you dilute that down to um, 10 10 mils. Some people do it to five. I do it as a 10 as a standard, so I can do it in the middle of the night when I, when I can't think. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's three milligrams per mil. Um, now, the key practice points, I guess, about ephedrine is it has both the chronotropic, so it increases heart rate as well as the vasopressor effect. So um, you actually get both the cardiac and the vascular response. Uh, it takes a little while to work. It's not as fast as midraminol. So um, what I got told when I was a junior was it, it's one cycle of a, of a non-invasive blood pressure. So it's about two to two and a half minutes um, before you get a response. In terms of dosing, you usually give. You usually have to give a fair bit, but I, I think I, my practice is I always give three, wait for a response, and then you kind of uptight it as you need to. So three to six oh. milligrams, I think is relatively... Um, yeah. to the
0: standard dose. And I, and I found that um, people can be so variable. Yeah, sometimes I give it and you're like, oh, did it even go in? Am I getting a response? And other times, so I en- ended up giving three plus three plus three milligrams to get this effect. And other mm-hmm. times I give three and then suddenly the blood pressure is 200. I'm like, well, how did that even happen? Yeah. Um, and I think often often it's when someone already has had some aramine and they're primed, and mm-hmm. then you add the ephedrine on top of that. Whereas if you just give it straight off as the first agent, you de- generally need a bit more.
1: And it's a it's a very common experience, I think, as a first year when you, mm-hmm. you know, when the boss um and the consultant leaves the room and you your blood pressure drops and you mm-hmm. kind of panic a little bit and you're giving it aramine, you give it an ephedrine, and suddenly the, the systolic is 220. Yeah. You just turn the screen away from the surgeon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, that wasn't a carotid endarterectomy or yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> a subarach case. No. So, um, and and look, I, I think this is um a really good medication for a number of reasons. Like, so the two major you know uses for it, if I'm having metaraminol that's not solving the problem, again, think of the framework: preload, rate, rhythm, contractility, afterload. I'm solving two of them, but maybe contractility is the issue. So maybe I really just need to give ephedrine to give that beta. Effect that inotropic effect, and that's what's going to be uh, best in this patient. So fantastic! I, I, I'm I'm thinking of all the avenues not to persist at a failing task of just giving metaraminol if, if it's not working. So I give I give ephedrine, and often mm-hmm. that that is a solution to the problem. Then I'm thinking, why was there poor contractility? So that's one really good use, and the other one is the fact that you can't give many medications intramuscularly, but you can give ephedrine. So imagine that situation where. This has happened a couple of times I've seen where the patient's being transferred or something's happened and the drip's fallen out on induction or near induction, patient's hypotensive. And it's always the case where the drip's really difficult. And the way you buy time is, I mean, a few things, but one of those things you can give again, under supervision, make sure there's a lot of other things going on. There's not something just in isolation, but giving intramuscular ephedrine is something that can buy you some time and potentially solve the hypertensive issue while you're trying to get this difficult trip in. Mm, I can't say I've ever had to do that. Um, but oh yeah. I'm it's saying. a, whew, that's, that's <laughs> <hairy then>. depending <laughs> on the situation, it can be very hairy, but you know, this is just, uh, I, I keep thinking anesthesia, surgery, These are just high, such high risk environments. There's so many things going on and um, yeah, these are r- really good plans to drill and have in place because there's some really random things that could happen.
1: <laughs> and I guess the other, um, the other practice point about effort doing is uh, mm. it's, it's it's a classic, um, you know, example of a, of a drug that undergoes tachyphylaxis. Um, so mm-hmm. you get depletion um, of your noradrenaline stores. Um, so so ephedrine has a predominantly indirect um, action, so it causes the release of noradrenaline, has some um, direct beta-1 cool. agonism as well. Um, but the more you use ephedrine, and you see it a lot faster than metraminol. um, If you give frequent dosing doses or a prolonged infusion or a prolonged um, set of boluses you do get a tachyphylaxis effect so it's a, it's a short-term solution if, if that's starting to fail and that tachyphylaxis is showing then you need to um, consider another more potent central agent generally like neuroadrenaline or, or adrenaline
0: yeah excellent now there's a really interesting situation that happens we, we do so many lap collies you know laparoscopic cholecystectomies and th- there's a sequence that happens that can be quite quite tricky and can cause problems so there's definitely something that's described as a major problem so let's say you've done the induction and the patient is hypertensive, and because of the agents and the patient you've, get, you've got this pattern of hypertension and bradycardia and then the surgeon is now about to do insufflation so at that point let's say the patient's blood pressure is you know 70 heart rates 45 50 which you know happens in some inductions uh, with the drug combinations that we use now Many people would just go, oh, okay, well, we, better give it, we better give metraminol because the blood pressure is low. But I'd almost say that's the wrong drug to give because suddenly you'll get that reflex bradycardia just as the um, insufflation occurs. And suddenly you have this situation where you've got a recipe for severe bradycardia or even asystole, which is insufflation of neuroperitoneum causes a bezel jarish reflex. You've got your baroreceptor reflex causing the bradycardia and you've got peritoneal stretch causing bradycardia. And this is something that's been described definitely once in, when I've been working where a patient had a really, really severe issue happen. Um, but at that point, when you've got bradycardia and hypotension and you're about to insufflate, ephedrine is probably the answer. So you mm-hmm. want that heart rate to be above 50 or 60 um, at least while it's happening. So not, you know, not giving aramine is probably, probably the right thing to do.
1: Mm. That's, a, that's a great example. And I think um, it's, it's a good example of a consequence of factors. <laughs> Um, but even bradycardia with hypertension alone, I think is enough of a reason when you should start thinking, should I be giving something that has a bit of beta one activity as well?
0: Let's get onto adrenaline because I think adrenaline is just one of those amazing life-saving drugs. Um, maybe we should go again, how, how do you, there's so many ways you can give adrenaline and it's used in our practice. And you, you know, because you've done the first part, you probably know a decent range of things. So let's go. Um, how are the many ways that you can give Adrenaline, Cass?
1: So, um, adrenaline is a is a great drug. And I think it's something, um, even as a junior, you should be very happy to draw up independently, um, particularly in an arrest situation, because a lot of non anesthetic ICU staff don't know how to draw it up correctly. Um, so, the ways you can give it, you can give it intravenously, you can give it intramuscularly, um, you can obviously do things like nebulize it um, if you, uh, but you know that wouldn't really have much uh, systemic vascular effect. I guess
0: you can nebulize as well uh, for airway swelling, and often we give it um, in combined with lignocaine, so you know subcut to the purposes. And we'll we've already talked about it in in the um, local anesthetic lecture.
1: Um. So what about dosing? So I guess we the, the preparation is is quite challenging. we and I and I still don't understand why the nomenclature is the way it is. I I think it's just a cruel um it's the cruel fact of life. We have one in one thousand. We have one in ten thousand. Yeah. Um, Teach us your way of um, (laughs) conceptualizing the dosing and how you prepare that from both of those solutions.
0: Fantastic. So the first thing to know is that. Okay. Let's um. Let's go with a few examples. Then your patient. You're worried because you're on the ward or in some context, and your patient looks like they're really having a severe anaphylactic reaction. The first right answer for most people who are not an anesthetic consultant or senior trainee is to give IM IM adrenaline. And the dose for this, for most people, is anywhere from 300 mics to 500 micrograms. So if you imagine that, the easiest way to do it, you've got a vial of one in a 1,000, which is one mil, that's a milligram. So all vials of adrenaline generally have a milligram, 10 mils of one in 10,000, or one mil of one in 1,000, still a milligram. But the easiest way to give an intramuscular dose is take a half of that, so 0.5 mils, that's 500 mics. Give it intramuscularly, and that's the recommended you know, standard fa- anaphylaxis. Um, now, the provider, as you become more experienced, more senior, you will be required to give intravenous uh, adrenaline, and this is this is a risky thing. There's definitely harm that can be associated with, it, so don't give it lightly. But we're talking about drawing up doses of 20 to 50 mics, maybe in severe circumstances, 100 micrograms IV, and so you know that's that's tricky to draw up. The easiest thing to do is probably. Get that 10 mil vial you know that's 100 mics and you can either just take a fraction of that like 0.5 mils of that is 50 or you can put the thousand mics into a thousand mils of normal saline and then start drawing up doses as you require it um, so i think most of these would do the 10 mil thing label it well make sure you can't get that confused with anything else on the tray because that's again how errors happen uh, and then give it give it as needed and definitely when i've had to treat anaphylaxis. I'm getting ten mils, labeling it well, and then drawing out 0.5 mils at a time to give intravenously.
1: So the way I so, as as Larry said, in both one in one thousand, one in ten thousand, you have one milligram of adrenaline. And the way I think about it is the one in ten thousand. So the key number there is ten. You have one milligram in ten mils. So I just divide that by ten. So you have a hundred micrograms per mil oh. In the one in one thousand, it's one milligram in a mill. So that's that's completely neat. And that that. I think uh, I had to figure out my own way of remembering that and everyone kind of seems to have a way, but I just remember one milligram, 10 mils is one in 10,000. And that, that makes sense to me. As, as again, a practice point, I, it's, it's, it's not uncommon. And I would say borderline relatively frequent that you're in an arrest and you ask for, or like a peri-arrest and you're asking for adrenaline and someone draws up the one in 10,000 straight. Mm-hmm. um and i'm still actually it'd be, it'd be good to get your advice cut because mm-hmm. you're a lsq yeah. instructor mm-hmm. um it's one of those conversations that's really difficult because trying to explain how to draw up 10 micrograms per mil because that's why we are often used to having on hand to give mm-hmm. is really challenging in an arrest situation um mm-hmm. and I, you know in, in, in i've i've progressed now to kind of securing the airway, getting someone else to bag and then drawing it up myself just to ensure we get a safe dose. Yes. And, um, but, but what's your approach?
0: Yeah, so that, that, that's definitely tricky. To get, you know, 10 mics per mil means that I need to get, you know, one mil of one in 10,000. And as I'm going through this, you'll see how complicated this is. There's so many ways that you'll, you know, you pass an instruction on and it'll get confused. So I think the easiest thing for people to do is just to give me the 10 mils of your adrenaline and and then give me another syringe with another 10 mils of saline. And I can just sort out the dilution myself, but realistically at the point I'm thinking about adrenaline, I can probably fractionate one in 10,000 into enough small parts because, yeah. if, you know, imagine I just, um, you know, one mil is a hundred bikes. I know that with a syringe, I can get 0.5 or less and roughly be about right. So, you know, if I, can, I can probably get to fractions of 20 mics pretty easily mm. and that stops, you know, all the dilutional problems. So that personally, I think that's what I would do. Yeah.
1: That's good advice. And I guess um, that that kind of uh, brings to light what's the difference between 10 micrograms and 20 micrograms, probably very little.
0: Yeah, um, exactly. It doesn't. Yeah, that's right. And and that's one of the reasons why I personally draw morphine neat because yes. Uh, you know, I don't have to really distinguish between one and two milligrams and you know, I can draw it up in a two or three mil syringe and that's fine. Uh, whereas aramine, you definitely have to dilute because the difference between giving you know a fraction of a mil or a bit more of a fraction is a massive problem. So yeah, it's one of those niche things. Um, and, and I mean, And so the other way adrenaline is often required and given is as an infusion. And here's a really great little secret to drawing up noradrenaline and adrenaline, which is uh, often we'll either, we, we want to run it in mics per minute, anywhere from, you know, one to 20 mics per minute. So here's a, here's an absolute gold point that you'll, once you learn it, hopefully you'll never forget, is three milligrams in 50 mils of a dilute, like the, uh, like normal saline or de- dextrose. Um, when you run that three milligrams diluted into 50 mils at mils per hour, that equals mics per minute. It's just a fantastic thing because the concentration comes out at something like, you know, uh, you know, if you put, 3000 micrograms in 50 mils, I think that comes out at 60 mics per mil. Yeah, so 3000 micrograms in 50 mils comes out at 60 mics per mil. And because it's 60, that means that mils per hour equals mics per minute because, you know, per hour, hour is 60 minutes or 60 fractions. So all of that just works. And this is great with noradrenaline and, you know, noradrenaline and adrenaline. Um, And the extension to that is. Uh, if you want the um, if you want to use a 100 mil bag of saline, you'd use six milligrams in 100 mils and that's a really easy way to run it. So say I've got a an, an patient who has anaphylaxis, uh, okay, we've got to start 10 mics per minute straight away. Three milligrams of adrenaline, 50 mils of normal saline, start the infusion going at 10 mils an hour equals 10mics per minute.
1: And I think that's a great trick to have on hand when you don't necessarily have the time or the familiarities to set up an Alaris pump and if you don't have an anesthetic nurse you can do it very quickly and and, and I, I think that that's a that's a great way to do it and I think the the clear thing again is um, you know obviously labeling it very clearly making sure whoever you're giving to a break or your consultant or your juniors are aware that that's what mm-hmm. you're doing because um, I think the standard protocol is still uh, depending on the hospital I'm guessing it's still running through the laris pump but um, yes, you yes. don't always have the time to do that
0: exactly and they'll have different formulas for that but in anesthetics, we're not worrying about the long-term progress of something necessarily. We need to get something started quickly. So yeah, just just this is the easiest formula. Everyone seems to know it, especially in our Australian, Victorian or Melbourne practice. Uh, and yeah, everyone ever, ever knows it.
1: So I guess let's, um, something that might be worth talking about, surgical reasons for avoiding vasopressor or for judicious ah. use of vasopressor. Do you want to give us some examples?
0: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the, the major thing that occurs is, I mean, off the, off, off the cuff, I can think of two situations when you have any kind of uh, transplanting, like a massive plastics case where you've got, uh, you know, some kind of free flap. So essentially what the surgeons are doing, they're taking an arterial supply to some kind of tissue and then mo- mobilizing it and resupplying the arteries in a different set- setting. So really, they're doing some incredible microsurgery to make, you know, say the skin or the muscle in one part of the body. Transplanted to another part for you know any manner of burns or cancer or problem like that, and then replanted. Now that is an incredibly difficult operation. Operation takes a lot of time, but also the fact that if you use vasopressors, you will start to decrease the you know you'll vasoconstrict that absolutely essential vascular bed, which means that the surgeons the tissue might have problems taking. And so they really don't want vasopressors running for that reason. So there's a lot of strategies that we'll do for that, including, you know, giving optimal fluid, maybe even running some, you know, beta beta agonists rather than alpha agonists. Um, But again, you've got this really tricky balance between perfusion of vital organs and perfusion of the free flap. So really tricky balance. Um, And then the other situation is, let's say you've got a patient uh, who's bleeding and the surgeon needs exposure of a site. The common situations are FEST surgery, so fun, functional endoscopic sinus surgery. Generally speaking, to get good surgical exposure, you need a hypertensive bradycardic patient. So they will not really want too much aramine being run. In fact, we'll run propofol and remifentanil to decrease that cardiac output just to the right level. Um, but you might have even trickier, bigger cases, emergency cases like subarachnoid hemorrhages where suddenly the, the, you know, the surgeon needs the blood pressure to be lower. And you, you know, you may be having to tolerate a lower blood pressure for a period of time. Really tricky situation. Lots of talk with with the surgeons. Definitely you'll be having, you know, a senior anaesthetist there at at those points. But, you know, so it's essentially avoiding vasopressor and uh, for the surgical requirement is not an uncommon thing.
1: Hmm. What about things like uh, bowel anastomoses and and things like that? Is there much evidence
0: around? uh, Yeah, so that's not uh, like, let's say a, done many many bowel resection anesthetics the surgeons are never too fussed about that um, usually because it's a temporary period of time um, and I think it's just bigger vessels it's not you know the vessels aren't as small I'm not, I'm not certain about that but it's never been an issue um, I think that if this if I was running very large doses of inopre, uh, inotropin vasopressor I'd definitely tell the surgeons that's unusual but generally speaking the patients will be off the vasopressor by the time the surgery is finished so it shouldn't be an issue yes. So the final drug we're going to talk about, noradrenaline. So Kaz, tell us about its action compared to adrenaline. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about that.
1: Um, so noradrenaline is um, predominantly an alpha one agonist, though at high doses, um, there can be some beta activity. Um, and I guess this is kind of converse to adrenaline where, um, you know, adrenaline at lower doses can be predominantly beta, but has a lot of alpha activity at normal normal doses. Mm-hmm. Um, so NORAD is you know kind of the the ideal um, the vasopressor as we said before we want to give it centrally not peripherally um, and it's, it's a very potent um, vasopressor so we use it in ICU a lot um, and I think in theater we use it in, in really patients. Um, I think there's probably a handful of patients I've started norad on that I've taken off by the end of the case. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely um, with the view of continuing it. Um, so I guess, do you want to walk us through, I guess we talked about the preparation of noradrenaline um, yeah. already, it, but do you want to um, speak to that a bit more?
0: Yeah, exactly. So imagine you, you, you've got a patient who's septic, um, who's got some kind of vasodilatory problem. Maybe they've had anaphylaxis and now you're trying to treat that um, and you're trying to treat the vasodilatory problem of anaphylaxis. So yeah, three milligrams of noradrenaline in a 50 mil syringe or six milligrams in a hundred mil run it, you know, mils per hour equals mics per minute. And you'd run anywhere, you know, I've seen some crazy ranges in my time, anywhere from, you know, just one or two mics per minute up to 20, even 40 in the most sick patients. Um, and really what you're doing, you're, tr- you're treating the vasodilatory state um, of that. Um, so yeah, and, and let's say you've got a longer case, like, you know, the Whipple's case, you're probably running anywhere from, you know, one to, to five to 10 mics per minute for those cases centrally. Um, and yeah, you just got to be really careful with these drugs. You know, extravasation causes tissue necrosis. Um, if you give a bolus accidentally, that can cause severe, severe hypertension. Um, and, you know, you're just being really cautious with these medications. But th- that, those are the bare bones that you need to know. You'll, you'll be supervised. You'll be probably running it through central line. You'll make sure you can draw it up at the right dose. Uh, and then you know you give it you give it cautiously and you titrate it and up and down very slowly. Practically speaking, if you're a junior junior anaesthetic trainee, you'll be very well supervised for all of these things. I think the most useful things you can do is suggesting it. So if you have a if you're preparing for a long case, suggesting that oh maybe we should do a central line, drop some NORAD, and having that ability to do the actions like drop NORAD yourself, label it, put it into a syringe or a or a bag, program the Alaris pump. These are all really useful things that. Uh, You know, as a junior, I was making sure that I could do all of these tasks because these are the tasks that you want to be able to do yourself um, as you're learning the more high end things like putting in central lines and overall management of these situations.
1: So let's imagine a situation where we are running NORAD and we're still quite profoundly hypotensive. um, Mm. And let's assume for the sake of the argument that all our alpha one receptors are occupied. Mm. Um, what are, is there another agent that we could add on to help with the vasoconstriction?
0: Uh, this is very much ICU territory. So uh, I've, I've, I've never had a situation where I've failed just noradrenaline. Like, you know, by the time it's getting up to that level, I'm definitely calling for ICU input because they're far more familiar with things. But essentially, I'll maximize adrenaline and noradrenaline. So I'm maximizing veno, vasodilation plus inotropy and chronotropy. So all of those things are covered. And then you've got these extra receptors. So potentially using vasopressin, which acts on V receptors, um, I think V one receptors, th- that can be another thing that you can use, as well as if, uh, you know, as well as other ways of promoting inotropy and trying to promote cardiac output. Mm,
1: exactly. So um, vasopressin acts on the V one and V two receptors. So it's a separate <laughs> mechanism for vasoconstriction to the alpha one receptors. Um, so you often commence it um, when you have 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 when you know when you're failing on on primary and alpha um, one uh, adrenergic receptor therapy. Um, again, I don't think I've used it in theatre very often, but ICU obviously use it use it quite often. Um, and then I guess other things to think about if you if you're running a high vasopressor and you can't um, you can't wean it off or you're not winning, you then need to think about that, the other physiological states like. You know the degree of filling, and and make sure you're covering all your bases, and not just getting occupied on just using a vasopressor, because um, sometimes that's not that's not the issue.
0: <laughs> but I think that's good. We've covered vasopressors. I think pretty practically, metaraminol and epinephrine, the common stuff you'll use. Um, it's just a system for drawing up adrenaline and noradrenaline, how you'd use it, a few circumstances, and hopefully that helps you in your first few weeks of anesthesia.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for joining us, guys. We'll um, see you next time. Thank you.
0: See you next time. Bye.